Welcome to the Grove Church Podcast and thegrovekc.com. Our mission as a church is to encourage people to discover true treasure in Jesus Christ. We hope you find today's teaching helpful and encouraging. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning again, and uh, as Walter said, my name is Christian. If we haven't yet met, I'm the lead pastor here in the Grove, and we are glad to have you with us. I learned some history this week. I wanted to pass along to you. Let's go back uh, about 120 years, fall of 1898. There were two traveling salesmen, John H. Nicholson and Samuel E. Hill, and they were making their way through Wisconsin, didn't know each other, found themselves at the same hotel. And this was a time when, uh, depending on how full the hotel was, you might find yourself with a roommate. And that's what happened to these two guys. So they go to check in, and there's only enough space for them to share a room. And so they become roommates uh, for that time that they're there in this city in Wisconsin. And the two salesmen bonded. They bonded over their shared faith in Jesus Christ. And as they began to get to know each other and spent time reading and praying together, they were concerned as traveling salesmen that their own faith would grow cold in their travels, right? They had a lot of different distractions, a lot of different temptations, different things going on as they're making their way around their part of the country. And so a, a year later, they met back up and they formally founded what we now know as the Gideons International. And their purpose was to unite, at that time, traveling salesmen for sharing their Christian faith and and encouraging one another in living out their faith practically. About 10 years later, nine years after that second meeting, the Gideons began distributing free Bibles. I want you to see, okay, so here's a picture before I go too far. There's a picture of the men there in the center uh, that were the original founders and a couple other key leaders. And then 1908, they began to distribute free Bibles. And here's In those early days, here's a picture of how that came to Kansas City, Gideon Bibles for the hotels of Kansas City. And the very first Bibles were placed in rooms of the Superior Hotel in Superior, Montana. But again, slowly they began to make their way all around the country. So here we are today, and members of the Gideons International, they currently average distribution of over 70 million Bibles annually. Now, if you did the math real quick, you would know that's roughly two Bibles per second that are given out by the Gideons International. It's pretty phenomenal what has taken place. And and since 1908, since that time, whether in hotel rooms or hospitals, college campuses, all kinds of other places, the Gideons have distributed over two billion Bibles. It took them almost, I'm going to say, uh, around 90 years to get to that first billion, and in about a 13-year span, they, they topped the next billion. Again, a phenomenal thing that has taken place. But I ask you the question, why? Why has that taken place? Why did this all get started? Why has that then grown into this thing that it's become? Well, these men and the, those who, the men and women who came after them understood something about their lives as Christ followers. They understood, right, something about themselves, their own hearts, their own uh, tendencies, they also understood something about their experiences as salesmen, what was, what was you know, common in their experiences as salesmen. And then they also understood something about the world in general. And, and around that, they had this, this vision, this idea of what they could do together. And they were convinced that people needed the Bible and the truth that it contains. Okay? They became convinced of that. 
And so out of that, you have what is now this just extraordinary organization, the Gideons International. Maybe you've been one who has not maybe taken the, the hotel Bible, though you're free to do that. I know I first encountered the Gideons as a college student when they were passing them out on campus, and I collected over the years a number of the little green uh, New Testaments that they would hand out on our college campus. And the question, just the reason I bring that to your attention is that today really what we want to look at is what do we make of our own lives? Right? This, this question, what do we make of our own lives? What, how do we see ourselves? And how do we really understand the world? And then specifically, what do we think the Bible's role is in our own lives and in this world that we live in? And so we're going back. We're, we're again, right at the tail end of this series on what we call the armor of God, coming from Ephesians chapter 6. If you were paying close attention, you know that at the top of your note, uh, your, your listening guide, it used to say last week it said you know, number 6 of 7. And today it says number seven of eight, right? So I just did a switcheroo on you. We are going to extend this series one more week. But today we want to talk about the Bible's role. And, and so I want to go back, Ephesians 6, where we've been, verse 10, and, and just remind ourselves of, kind of the underlying idea that's leading us into looking at what we call the armor of God. It says in verse 10, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Okay, so we've said, again, this is way of review every single week. What we make of this is that when you become a Christ follower, you are enlisting in a certain, in, in an army of sorts, okay? It's not the only way we talk about the Christian life, but it is a way that we need to understand the Christian life. When you, you trust Jesus, you hand your life over to him and say, look, I want to do life your way. I want to accept the gift of new life that you offer me through your death, your life, death, and, and resurrection, then we become a part of uh, his army, so to speak. We're part of the household of God. But that means we're enlisting into a war that has been raging long before us and will rage unless God does something that we don't know about yet, even, even long after we leave this earth. And so it's important to know that when we think about this battle, one, we fight on an unseen front. This battle is not against other people. Okay? The, the battle is against something that is spiritual. It's an unseen front. But what God tells us is that he supplies us with his strength for this battle. He doesn't intend for us to fight alone. And the third part of this is that he prepares us to prevail. So we're actually fighting a battle that we're told has been won. We have victory, and we're fighting from victory, not for victory. Okay? Now, there are victories in our own lives. There's things we need to deal with. We live in this in-between. But we're fighting knowing that ultimate victory is promised. And so we, don't, we, we fight with, as we looked at just last week, we fight with hope. Just a, a great, unquenchable hope. And so today, in light of all of that, we turn to this final, formal piece of the armor. We'll look at another next week. But this is the singular weapon. Okay, here, here we're talking about the singular weapon that's described here in Ephesians 6. So verse 17, we're told, Take the helmet of salvation, last week, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So we're going to look at the sword of the Spirit. We're going to look at... The, the, the sword. And so what is that sword of the Spirit? As we have, what, is that, what was this like in Roman armor? When we refer to a sword, what are we talking about? Well, in Roman armor, the sword, this is what it's intended to do. It allows you 
to defend and attack in close combat. Okay, really key. That the sword we're referencing here, the sword that Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote this had in mind, was a sword that was going to allow you to defend and attack in close combat. The word, the Greek term, is makaira. And it's translated here as sword, and it it refers to a weapon with a blade about two inches wide and about two feet long, maybe 18 inches to two feet long. And and the version that Paul had in mind is most likely the Roman gladius. Now, I want to take you back to the picture we've been looking at of just what the armor would have looked like for a Roman legionnaire, okay? And you see it slung across his shoulder, that there's that, uh, that gladius that he would have held. Here's, here's a close-up picture of what we think that probably would have looked like. There's some different machairas if you look up, if you like swords and those kinds of things. You look up a machaira and there's some different versions. Some have a little bit more of a, a swoop to them. Kind of looks like a, a Nike deal. But um, here we have just a, a, the machaira or the gladius. Okay? That's, that's what we're talking about. This is not a large sword. This was a, a sword intended for close combat. Okay? We'll come back to that. But what is this in God's armor? Okay, in God's armor, the sword is just what we're told. Okay, we're told very clearly. It is the word of God. It's God's word. Okay, now, I want to read you something that describes what we mean when we say God's word, when we talk about the Bible. This comes from what is known as the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It's a, a statement of faith intended to give an understanding of some key doctrinal ideas of, of what it means to, to be a Christian. And here's what it says about the Scriptures. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Now, this is a great encapsulation of what we mean when we talk about believing the Bible, being a people of the Bible people who believe and trust in God's word. This, these words, it is a perfect treasure of divine instruction, is a beautiful description of what the scriptures are. And again, it is a masterful attempt to summarize all that scripture says about itself. But here's my, my humble quibble, okay? Just very, very humble quibble. Is that you could read that statement and potentially miss a vital aspect of what God's word is all about, okay? Now, Again, a minor quibble, but it's important. I want to draw your attention to it. Isaiah 55, 11 tells us this about God's word. He says, My word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. We know this is instruction. This is what we're told. It's instruction. It's meant to, to instruct us. It's meant to teach us. It's meant to give us some ideas of things. But, but this gets at something a little bit more. So, so here again, what Scripture says about itself. 1 Peter chapter 1, talking about our, our salvation, it says, You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. Okay, this is, again, 
That statement that we read talks about its enduring nature. But it's the living Word of God. And so one more time, Hebrews 4.12, we're told this. And here this image of a sword is used again. The Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You catch it, right? Here, here it all comes together. This, when we talk about reading God's Word, we're talking about coming to something that is living. Now, what, what do I mean? In that it's changing around, it's breathing? No, I, I mean that it is, it is not just something flung onto pages that God then goes away from and says, I hope you got it. Instead, it's living and effective. It is actually, God uses his word. He uses the Bible as we come to it and understand it and seek to know it and know him through it. He uses that to do something in our lives. And so, again, the minor quibble here is not that there's anything wrong with that statement, except that we could read that statement and forget that we don't just come here to get some, some instruction. We come here, we come to God's word to engage with the living God. To know him and to understand who he is. Okay, so again, a minor quibble, but I don't want us to miss that. When we talk about this being the sword of the spirit, we're talking about something that is powerful and we need to handle it with care. Okay, so it is God's word and what does it do? It allows you to fight back and drive away the enemy. That's what we have in mind here in Ephesians 6, that it's allowing us, God's word is meant to help us fight back when the, when the attacks come. And not just fight back, but to actually drive away the enemy. We're told in this realm of, of how to engage with the enemy, with Satan. We're told in James 4, 7, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We're, we're to resist. And, and there's this there's promise that there's a way in which we resist, and he will actually leave us alone. And it doesn't say he'll flee from you forever, but he will flee from you. It goes on, 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. We've looked at this the last few weeks. We're told to be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, he's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. And so what do we say? Just stay away. No, you, you can't avoid him. Resist him, though, firm in the faith. We're to resist the enemy. And the way that we're given to resist the enemy is God's word. It's living and active. And it's meant to do a work in us, but it's also meant to do a work for us on our behalf as we deal with these attacks. We say, well, okay, I get it. But if we're going to engage in this kind of battle, right, if it's really as serious as you say, Christian, then wouldn't it be better, I mean, like, really, wouldn't it be better to have the long-range ballistic missile of the Spirit, right? Like, wouldn't that be more helpful? I can just sit back and kind of maybe, maybe it's like a, one of those, you know, a, a grenade launcher or something. I can put it on my shoulder and I can just launch it from way far away. Or, or at the very least, we saw the picture of the Roman legionary. He not only had a, a sword in that picture, but he had a javelin. Right? I mean, God, can you at least give me the javelin of the Spirit so I can stand way back and I can launch something at him and we don't have to get too close? But instead, we're dealing with this sword, and, it's, and you, know, you say, well, okay, a sword, I understand, but why not like a, a big old William Wallace Claymore, right? Like, why don't I get that sword that's like five feet tall, and I'm way back here, and right, we're doing, why this, this short sword that is this close combat, why do we have to deal with that? 
Well, because this is just the nature of the enemy. He attacks up close and personal. So I want the long-range ballistic missile of the Spirit or the javelin of the Spirit or the claymore of the Spirit, but that's not the way of the battle, the nature of the battle. And we've got to understand that and then learn to do battle the way it just is. And so with that in mind, how does Jesus, we've been saying all along, we don't fight. We're not the, the guinea pigs here. God doesn't just send us out here and say, hey, I think this stuff works. Why don't you go try it out? Let's see what happens. No, Jesus himself has used these very elements in his own victory over Satan, sin, and death. So how did he do it? How did he use it? What we find as we look through the scriptures is that he wielded God's word to turn away the onslaught of temptation. Okay? He, he he wielded God's word to turn away the onslaught of temptation. And now, I, I picked that word onslaught because I want us to understand this isn't something Jesus did one time. But again and again and again, he was dealing with the kind of temptation that you are walking in here knowing that you've been dealing with. We're told, uh, again, that, that, that Jesus was the fulfillment of all kinds of prophecy, that, that the Messiah would come and he was going to display certain qualities. We've been looking at them, especially from the book of Isaiah. So here's another, Isaiah 49.2, describing the Messiah and his trust in God. He says, He made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. And what we find is, God, is Jesus demonstrating this same kind of trust. He, he's hiding himself in the truth of who God is and using that truth, using the truth of God's word to do battle. And so we see this, and, and we're told that that was effective. Hebrews 2.18 we're told that he, talking about Jesus, he himself has suffered when he was tempted. And, and because of that, he is able to help those who are tempted. He suffered. He went through real difficulty dealing with this onslaught. Furthermore, we're told in Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It's talking about Jesus. But we have one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. You say, well, well, Jesus didn't have to deal with like all the temptations of having an iPhone. Yeah, I know that. I know that, right? So it's not talking about like all the temptations you deal with when you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off. It's not, he, he never had to drive a car like you did. But every kind of temptation, all the kinds of temptations that show up in our lives, no matter in what time or space you live in, he has dealt with those. And he handled the onslaught. Yet he did it unlike any of us. He did it without sin. You say, so how did he do it? Well, he wielded God's word. So I want to take us, and we're going to spend the majority of our time, the rest of our time, just looking at an account that many of you have been talking about or thinking about. You know, I mentioned it a few weeks ago. I was going to get here. Luke chapter 4, we're told how Jesus dealt with this kind of onslaught. Verse 4, this is early in his ministry. It says, Jesus left the Jordan. He had just been baptized. It says, full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, this is the understatement of the whole Bible, he was hungry, okay? 40 days in the desert, no food, being tempted by the devil. He's hungry. We're told at the end of this encounter, verse, four, verse 13, after the devil had finished every temptation, 
he departed for, from him for a time. Just as we looked at, right? Resist the devil and he will flee. That's the exact same thing that happens to Jesus. He resists the devil in a temptation unlike anything you and I have faced. And for a time, he leaves. But the suggestion here is that there were other times that he, Jesus had to face this again and again and again. Maybe not this, this quite the same, but he was facing this onslaught of temptation over and over. And so now it brings us to, to us. What, what does that then help us? How, how do we then need to think about this in terms of how we are tempted? How, how, which of the devil's schemes is the sword of the Spirit especially useful? And I'll say this. We've been talking about the sword of the Spirit all the way through. Okay, so, so we could really say in any, any of the temptations, we need God's word. But I want you to see especially what comes up and why, how Jesus handles some specific temptation in using the word of God. Okay, so it's especially useful when we are offered comfort, security, and satisfaction in exchange for compromise. In exchange for compromise. Now, when I say compromise, it's a similar attack as the belt of truth. It's very similar as when we talked about the belt of truth. But, but let's look at what happens here in Luke chapter 4. Let me flip back over there real quick. Luke chapter 4, the rest of the story. Verse 2, uh, I'm sorry, going, starting in verse 3. Okay, so he's ate nothing. When they were over, he was hungry. But in the, in, in the middle, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. So, so here he is. He's been tempted. He's right at the tail end. Tell this stone to become bread if you are the Son of God. And Jesus answered him, it's written. He goes to the Scriptures. Man must not live on bread alone. So the onslaught didn't stop. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it's been given over to me. And I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you. And they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, do not test the Lord your God. So these three temptations, then we're told, after the devil had finished, he departed for him, from him for a time. What happens here? See, we see in this passage, Jesus is tempted with doubt about his identity. He's tempted to doubt the approval of the Father. He'd just come, again, from being baptized, where at the, the tail end of that, the Father, his voice comes from heaven. And he says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. It, it was a statement of affirmation. It was a statement of blessing over Jesus' life that was intended to lead him forward to do perfectly what the Father had told him to do. And here he finds himself being tempted with that very thing two different times. If you are the Son of God, then surely you'll give in to what I'm suggesting. This temptation to doubt who he is as God's Son. And the hope was that this would soften him so that he would pursue three different things. One, comfort, right? He's tempted 
to pursue comfort apart from the Father, to eat stones turned into bread after a 40-day fast. He's Jesus. He, can do, he does all kinds of crazy, awesome things. No small thing. Just turn these stones into some bread. I mean, you, you, you turn a little kid's Lunchable into, into, into like feeding all kinds of people. You can do this. So he's, he's tempted to pursue comfort. And then he's tempted to pursue security, right? Hey, Jesus, you, you, can, you can put yourself in any precarious position, any situation, and these angels will come and they'll take care of you. How much do we also want just security? You, you want to know that, man, no matter what happens, it's all going to be okay. And so we're tempted to pursue security apart from God. Same thing for Jesus. And then finally, he's tempted to pursue power, to pursue satisfaction apart from God, right? All this splendor, all this authority of the kingdoms will be yours, Jesus. Just bow down and worship to me. Again, we're tempted to seek glory, to seek power, authority, all these things apart from God because we're not sure God will really give us what we think we deserve. And so how does Jesus deal with every single one? With the word of God. And what's so interesting, I want you to hear this. In his classic work on spiritual warfare, C.S. Lewis writes through Uncle Screwtape, a senior demon. He says this, All extremes except extreme devotion to the enemy are to be encouraged. Now, the enemy, in Screwtape letters, is God. From the, from the demon's perspective, the enemy is God. And so all extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, are to be encouraged. In other words, compromise can take two different forms. The temptation to compromise goes two different directions. It can go towards the direction we tend to think of, which is blatant error and falsehood. Right? To, to just go off the rails, go in a direction that we know is not any good, that it's just defies God. But this other thing exists where we're also often tempted to compromise in the other way, which is that we, we twist truth just enough and it gets taken to these unbiblical and unhealthy extremes. See, you, you can be wrongfully zealous for good things and in so doing get off and begin to compromise and, and not do really the will of God, not really be trusting God. And so the enemy is, is pleased to tempt us, to, to lead us to compromise in either direction. In, in any direction except actually trusting ourselves to God. But the Word of God, staying rooted in the Word of God, is meant to help us combat that. So how do we use the Word of God to fight against enemy schemes? Again, I want to drive home this point. Ian Dugan, his work on the whole armor of God, he says this, We sometimes turn our study of the Bible into an academic exercise. As if we were reading to get an A on a test rather than to equip our souls for mortal combat. I love the Bible. God changed my life because I got around some people, began to read the Bible for myself. My name's Christian. I thought I knew what that was about. Began to actually read the Bible that I hadn't really paid much attention to for many, many years. And God used his word and the people of, around me to, to help me see something different. And he saved me. He changed my life. And he's changed my life as I've engaged with him in his word. And I love studying it. I love spending time thinking about it and talking about it. But man, we, we so easily do just what Duguid says and we, we 
can get in our heads, man, I just need to know some stuff in case God shows up and starts giving me a quiz. But the reality, again, this goes back to what's the nature of this world? If we're in a battle, then I'm preparing for more than a quiz. I'm preparing for mortal combat. So the first thing we do to fight against enemy schemes, you got to get a grip, okay? you got to get a grip. This is a, one of my favorite illustrations. I learned this many years ago. The Navigators, classic, uh, a great organization that, that helped develop discipleship and, and help people know how to walk with God, developed this idea of the word hand, okay? You see it there. Five fingers to help us understand how do we get a grip on God's Word. One, you hear the Word. Okay? Then you read the Word. You study the Word. You memorize the Word. And you meditate on the Word. And the, the whole point of the illustration, right, is if you ask me to hold this Bible just with my pinky, right? If all I ever do is I hear, right? I just show up here and I listen. You listen to me preach or whoever's here preaching. That's, that's good. You, you can kind of hold on to that a little bit. But that only goes so far. And if you want to take this out of my hand, I, have not, I can't do anything against you. And now, if I start to read it for myself, now I get somewhere. But you know, you can read the Bible and then walk away, and you're like, five minutes later, I have no idea what, I don't even know what chapter I was in. I, you know. So again, helps you get a little bit better of a grip. And begin to study it, right? You begin to really like, oh, let me understand this. And some people, we, we get stopped here. We think, oh, look, again, I'm studying for the test. I know all kinds of cool little things. I, I can tell you all kinds of stuff problem is I still don't really have my hands around it. Then I begin to memorize it. Now I've got a pretty good platform by which to hold on to this thing. But ultimately, the way I really get a grip is I begin to meditate on it. I begin to think about it. I begin to mull it over and consider what does this mean, not just for a, a pop quiz, but for my life, for doing battle. I begin to meditate on that thing. And now you try to take this from me, and I've got a grip on the Word of God. That's the idea. And so this is what we, we try to encourage. This is what we're, we're hoping that we will all learn to do together is to get a grip on God's word. This is what we, we help our kids in the, the kids' ministry, the boys specifically. They learn something. I wanted to pass along to you. Some of you have seen this over the years. They learn what we call the warrior battle chant. They have all kinds of fun. They have real swords, right? As they're learning about the nature of, not real sword, like not, not like slice your arm off swords, like <laughs> Like foam swords, so they can kind of practice this, right? And so with their, their foam swords, they, they say, guard the doorways to your mind. That's where the battle starts. The enemy thoughts, they sneak inside with swords and poison darts. And they go, swing the sword. You guys know this. Swing the sword, sword of the spirit. Make the devil, or make the enemy run. Swing the sword, sword of the spirit. Till the battle is won. We don't get to swing at one time, and he goes, oh, no. I'll go run away. No, we, we have to battle. But God tells us, he promises us, resist him. Use the strength that I provided. Use the weapon that I've given you. And he will flee. So get a grip. And then get going. Okay, get going. We start, I mean, get a grip starts with, hey, I'm in a battle. And I need to say the truth of the word. But then I get going. It's, I pray to obey. I ask for God's help in order to then obey. That's what we mean by get going. So we're told again and again and again that just, again, hearing the word, just reading the word with no intention of doing anything about it, there's a problem there. And in fact, that illustration, it gets taken much further and you can say, well, you know, there is a pretty good grip, 
But we can then think of our palm as the application of the word. And now I get that thing deep into my palm, and now I've got my hands around this thing. And that's what we're called to do. James 1, we're told, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom, that's what it is, this is freedom, and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. We're told earlier, Joshua 1.8, when Joshua is being prepared for battle, God comes to him and he says, and he's talking about what he knows at that point. He says, this book of instruction, he's talking about part the, the, the Torah, this book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Why? He says, look, carefully observe everything written, but because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He tells him, be careful to obey, but obey knowing that I'm here. And so when Jesus comes and he's setting the pace and, and showing us what it looks like to trust God and walk with him and wield the sword of the Spirit, he tells us, he tells us, John 14, 26, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. It is the sword of the Spirit. This is, the, this is God the Spirit as we read and engage with this, if you have trusted Christ, then the Spirit of God lives in you to help you understand and obey what he's told you to do. And so we're told in Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, you don't just get to come to this and go, oh, good. Oh, I see it there. This is how I get my ticket to heaven. Great, I'll file that away, now I'll go live, then I'll come back, and hopefully it won't be too crumpled up, and, and it'll still be good when I need it. No, we're told, look, this is why you get the ticket, but, but now live it. Now live, keep in step with the Spirit. That same Spirit that saves you wants to lead you forward in obedience, in the good life that God promises. It wants to lead you against the enemy, help you to resist the temptations to deal with the attacks. So that's what we're called. Get a grip and get going. If we, if we regard this as, as really important, but we don't really care to do anything about it, we miss it. So I want to wrap up and, and share with you just a, a reminder from the Gideons. You know, they were founded, again, on an understanding of the nature of the battle. And a deep-seated belief that God's word plays an unequaled part in our struggle. So listen to this beautiful paragraph. It is found in the introduction of every Bible produced by the Gideons. And it answers this question, what is this book? What is this book? The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, 
the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, too, heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. I want to encourage you to take steps to practice wielding God's word. If that's new to you, if you're unsure where to start, kind of how to get going on that, I want to invite you here in a couple weeks, two Mondays, not, not, next, not this Monday, um, and not next Monday, two Mondays from tomorrow. I'll do what I call a quiet time workshop. We'll do that again. Some of you have been through that. It's an hour, 75 minutes, just to help you learn to get a grip on spending regular time with God and Bible reading and prayer. I want to encourage you to, to consider doing that. Even if you say, oh, I know kind of what that's about, I need a refresh. It helps me when I go back through it to teach it. So it can help you if you've been walking with God for a long time. I encourage you to think about that or, or other steps you would take to begin to get a grip on God's word, learn to wield it well as we fight the battle. Let's pray together. Father, I indeed thank you for your goodness. You've given us your very mind, made us able to understand what you value, what you say is good. And more than that, your word is living and effective. And we are able to wield it in the battle. I pray that you would help us to do just that. God, we thank you. We love you. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray that you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at thegrovekc.com for more ways to connect with us. And join us again next week for another podcast from The Grove Church. Have a great day.